Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 39, The Efficacy of Methotrexate in Real-World Management of Giant Cell Arteritis, a Case Control Study. This was published in the Journal of Rheumatology in 2019 by Koster et al. This is a nice paper on an important topic using my least favorite trial design. I've been known to say that there are lies, damned lies, in case control studies, and although I enjoyed this paper, I can't say that I'm ever going to change my opinion about that. Two brief plugs before I get to the paper itself. For starters, if you like this podcast, please share it with a friend. The easiest way is to send the link to my website, ebroom.com, and let them sign up using their favorite method of podcast acquisition. My second plug is for a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine this week by Ali Duarte Garcia. It's entitled Older Drugs with Limited Trial Evidence, Are They Worth the Expense? And it essentially catalogs the enormous sham that is Acthar gel. This junk was essentially a unused, obscure medication that had been grandfathered in when the FDA converted to requiring proper randomized controlled trials before approving the medication. Sensing a golden opportunity, a pharmaceutical company bought it up, jacked the price from pennies on the dollar to $44,000 a year, and has since managed to fleece Medicare for half a billion dollars a year using a drug that, to my knowledge, has absolutely no evidence for benefit over prednisone, which costs virtually nothing. Thank you to Dr. Duarte for exposing this mess in a short and punchy column for the Annals of Internal Medicine. Highly recommend everyone check it out. With that, let's talk about methotrexate and giant cell arteritis. Before I get to the paper itself, we're going to need to give some background, which is the fact that there have been three randomized controlled trials assessing this issue. The first major trial we need to discuss is by Hover et al. It was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2001 and was entitled Combined Treatment of Giant Cell Arteritis with Methotrexate and Prednisone, a Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial. For brief background for all these trials, Giant cell arteritis affects patients primarily over the age of 50. The risk of irreversible vision loss is as high as 20%, which is scary, so lots of patients get prednisone. Unfortunately, flares are common, anywhere from 40 to 80%, depending on what data you look at, when patients are treated with prednisone alone. Consequently, patients get high doses of prednisone for a long period of time and suffer substantial comorbidities because of it. Finding a corticosteroid-sparing drug for giant cell arteritis, as we have in so many other diseases, has been something of a holy grail. Multiple authors have addressed methotrexate because methotrexate is kind of what rheumatologists do. Getting back to the Hover paper, it was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, single-center study that ran from 1993 to 1997. Inclusion criteria were a positive result on a temporal artery biopsy and less than two weeks of treatment with high-dose steroids. We're not looking at people who are relapsing at any point of disease. We're looking at people who come in with GCA and get started on methotrexate. Exclusion criteria were relatively narrow in the sense that it was essentially anything that made methotrexate a contraindication. Now, the treatment protocol is important. Patients were randomized to either four tablets of methotrexate or a matching placebo. What's the problem with that? Four tablets of methotrexate is essentially a baby dose. There's very few patients who I treat with that little methotrexate if I'm really trying to control their disease activity. All patients got oral prednisone, starting at 60 milligrams per day. Patients were tapered relatively quickly. By the end of the second month, they were down to 20 milligrams daily, and then they were tapered every two weeks by 2.5 milligrams until therapy was completely withdrawn. I'd say this is on the short end of what tapers people usually use. Initial response to treatment was defined as the absence of symptoms of GCA and normalization of laboratory values after the initiation of treatment. Relapse was a little bit vague. It was a recurrence of symptoms of GCA after definite objective improvement, 
and then these symptoms reversed on resumption or increase of the prednisone dose. In my clinical practice, at least, I will say that defining relapse for GCA is challenging, and I think there's a lot of interpretation to this particular definition. Major outcomes were the number of disease relapses and the total cumulative dose of prednisone during follow-up. Overall, 42 of 50 eligible patients were enrolled in the trial, so they essentially enrolled the majority of people who were approached. 39 actually completed it. Unfortunately, there was a higher dropout rate in the methotrexate group. 95% of the placebo group completed the trial, and 75% in the methotrexate group. They didn't do a clean intention-to-treat analysis, but they did show a completion of follow-up that included those people who had dropped out. Ultimately, in the methotrexate group, 45% of patients relapsed, and in the placebo group, 84% of patients relapsed. That's a pretty big difference. That equates to a number needed to treat of somewhere between 2 and 3 patients, which is very reasonable for low-dose methotrexate. Most relapses occurred between the 4th and 6th months after randomization, which is pretty typical of GCA. Relapses tend not to happen on high doses of steroids. There's a surprisingly large amount of relapses once you get to a smaller dose of steroids, and then once you're off, there's also more relapses. Now, in addition to showing a benefit to relapses, there's a corticosteroid sparing effect where patients in the methotrexate group received about 4 grams of steroids, and patients in the placebo group received about 5.5 grams of steroids. All of these results were statistically significant, so the authors went on to conclude that methotrexate is effective in controlling disease activity while producing a quantifiable prednisone-sparing effect. When you look at the number of patients who made it into this trial, what I consider to be somewhat vague definitions, and the fact that it was done in a single center, I think we should think of this as a phase one or phase two randomized controlled trial for methotrexate. Now we've all seen phase two randomized controlled trials followed by the wayside as a phase three trial emerges, so let's talk about that next. The next trial is by Hoffman et al., who's published in Arthritis and Rheumatism in May of 20, 2002. It was entitled A Multicenter Randomized Double Blind Placebo Controlled Trial of Adjuvant Methotrexate Treatment for Giant Cell Arteritis. This was conducted by the International Network for the Study of Systemic Vasculitides. It ran from 1994 to 1998, and every patient was followed for a minimum of one year. To get into the trial, you need to be over 50 years of age, you had to have an ESR over 40, and you had to have at least one of the following, a temporary biopsy, unequivocal symptoms of GCA, angiographic abnormalities, or PMR plus ischemic related vision loss. Exclusion criteria were somewhat similar to the HOVER study, but a little bit more restrictive. Patients were excluded if they had started prednisone for more than 21 days prior to study entry, had a prior diagnosis of GCA or PMR that had been previously treated with immunosuppression and relapsed, or had any of the typical contraindications to receiving methotrexate. Interestingly, patients who did not respond initially to glucocorticoids were also excluded because they said that the absence of a response argues against GCA as a diagnosis. I don't think that's unreasonable, but it is a notable difference from the other trial. In this trial, they started prednisone at one mg per kg, not to exceed 60 mg daily. Patients got oral methotrexate at this sort of complicated regimen that ultimately wound up being around 15 mg per week. The monitoring was very well conducted. Two investigators who were blinded to treatment allocation would evaluate each patient at every visit. One would do medical care and the other one would do a standardized case report form. Relapse was defined as a change in the ESR from normal to greater than 44, plus at least one other feature of GCA not attributable to other conditions. This is more or less how I do this as well. I try not to treat isolated rises in inflammatory markers as if they're a relapse because I think these are nonspecific 
and I think you're going to commit a lot of patients to treatment who don't necessarily need it. Treatment failure was defined as the occurrence of two distinct disease relapses or a relapse created by prednisone that did not lead to improvement. Statistical analysis was done on an intention to treat basis. The primary endpoint was the first disease relapse and treatment failure, which we just discussed. Before we talk about the methods, I think it's important to discuss the power of this trial. So it was originally designed to enroll 300 patients. They assumed they would see a 30% relapse rate during the first year of follow-up. That sample size would give them an 80% power to detect a 50% reduction in GCA relapses. They wound up seeing a lot more relapses than 30%, which is sort of expected based on what we know of GCA. So they wound up only needing 98 patients enrolled to get to their original power. Do we think that original power is enough? Back when they assumed that the relapse rate was 30%, a 50% reduction in relapses would be 30% to 15%. To be honest, that seems like a relatively high bar. I'd be okay with a 10% absolutely reduction in relapse rates. This problem is exacerbated when they recalculate their numbers. So a 50% reduction in relapses, if we're seeing 60% rate of relapse, is taking you from 60% down to 30%. That's an absolute risk reduction of 30%, which to me is a slam dunk for methotrexate. So if anything, I think their power calculation here was a little too conservative. Ultimately, 98 patients were enrolled, 47 were randomized to receive corticosteroid plus placebo, and 51 to receive corticosteroid plus methotrexate. The median age was 74 years, 80% of patients had been treated with corticosteroids prior to enrollment. At 12 months, 77.3% in the placebo group and 57.5% in the methotrexate group had failed therapy. These differences were not statistically significant, P equals 0.26. A separate analysis of only the first observed relapse in each group also did not reveal statistically significant differences, P equals 0.90. They had some pretty Kaplan-Meier curves, which all showed a gradual divergence between the groups, but ultimately, this was not statistically significant. Subgroup analysis of patients who had headaches, scalp pain, jaw pain, tongue pain, vision loss were not statistically significantly different. New vision loss at one year was 13.8%, four patients in each group, not statistically significant. And the medium total dose of prednisone in the placebo group was 5.2 grams versus 5.4 grams in the methotrexate group, also not statistically significant. Ultimately, these results led the authors to conclude that methotrexate does not have a substantial effect on the course of GCA, the incidence of strictly defined relapse, cumulative corticosteroid dose, or treatment-related morbidity. Now, the authors at this point knew about the Spanish study and needed to grapple with the stark difference between their results. I thoroughly enjoyed their quip at the beginning of this discussion, where they said, the results of that single-center trial, which enrolled 42 patients and used a less intensive regimen of methotrexate than ours, are difficult to reconcile with our own. I agree. So in the Hoffman study we just talked about, they actually gave more methotrexate. If anything, I would expect the Hoffman study to have been more successful than the Spanish trial. A couple things to consider. The first is that the Spanish study didn't show an enormous benefit and the Hoffman study showed no benefit. The Spanish study showed a large benefit, number needed to treat of two to three, and the Hoffman study showed a small benefit that wasn't statistically significant. If you compare the number needed to treat between the two trials, it was somewhere between 2 to 3 in the Spanish study and around 5 in the Hoffman study. I would argue that that's not as far apart as you would initially say if you're comparing these two studies and saying one showed a benefit and one did not. A few other things could explain this difference. One is that the Hoffman study used a very tight definition of relapse 
whereas the definition of relapse in the Spanish study wasn't quite as clear and I suspect was a little more loosey-goosey. In the Spanish study, they tapered steroids pretty quickly. It's possible that the rapid steroid taper revealed the benefit of methotrexate more quickly. Putting these two trials together, I would say that there was a phase 2-ish study that showed a relatively large benefit, a phase 3 study showed no benefit that was statistically significant, but did suggest that there's something here. What do you do when you have a questionable phase 2 study that shows a large benefit, followed by a phase 3 study that showed no statistically significant benefit, but may have been a little bit underpowered? You run a really big randomized phase 3 controlled trial, correct? Well, that is not the real world. In the real world, we do a meta-analysis. So let's talk about that. In 2007, in Arthritis and Rheumatism, Alfred Marr et al. published Adjunctive Methotrexate for Treatment of Giant Cell Arthritis. They essentially combined the Spanish study, the Hoffman study, and another even smaller randomized controlled trial by Spirit et al., which had showed no benefit whatsoever, to make a big Franken-monster of data. Now, people who listen to this podcast know that I really don't like meta-analyses. This is actually an interesting situation where you do have three randomized controlled trials and you have one large randomized controlled trial that showed no benefit that was statistically significant, but did suggest that there might be something there. Had the Hoffman trial been powered to show a smaller difference and not shown it, I would say that this question should be over, but I think the Hoffman trial left open the door for this. So this meta-analysis was well conducted as far as meta-analyses go. They actually had individual patient-level data. When you combine all the patients from all three studies, you got 84 patients in methotrexate, 77 who received placebo. There was a relatively high rate of dropout. Methotrexate got up to 11.1 milligrams per week overall. Again, that is just not quite enough methotrexate. Now, because this is a meta-analysis, they had to standardize their primary outcome, which they ultimately settled on first and second relapse because they had that data for all the trials. 61% of patients experienced a first relapse, 29% experienced a second relapse. This is good background for practicing clinicians just to know how often patients with GCA relapse. At 48 weeks, 63% of patients who received methotrexate and 80% of patients who received placebo had a relapse. That's a number needed to treat of a little over five. The second relapse rates were even more divergent, 63% in methotrexate versus 42% in placebo for a number needed to treat of a little bit less than five. They also managed to show that there was a steroid sparing effect of methotrexate of about a gram of prednisone. That's not too bad. That's within the range where I could start to imagine that impacting a patient's life in a positive way. I should note that they actually followed patients for quite a bit longer than 48 weeks, but I really don't believe in any of that data. The median length of follow-up in the Hoffman trial was relatively short, so most of the patients who are driving those long-term outcomes were coming from the smaller, less well-designed randomized controlled trials, and I don't even think it's worth talking about. How do we bring this together? Well, if you're someone who read the Hoffman trial and said to yourself, looks like there might be something there, if only we'd had a few more patients, then you're probably a fan of this meta-analysis. If you're someone like me, who really doesn't like meta-analysis, you look at this and say, we had one good randomized controlled trial, we threw a bunch of patients from less good randomized controlled trials into that pool, and we showed a benefit. If the benefit had not aligned closely with what we kind of saw in the Hoffman trial, I'd be really skeptical of this. Experts in GCA that I have talked to are very skeptical of this. Multiple people who have conducted randomized controlled trials in GCA have told me that they don't think methotrexate works at all. For that reason, I've been pretty methotrexate skeptical, but after reading this data, I've come around to thinking that there's probably something here. 
I know that's a lot of background, but it's hard to talk about a case control study if you haven't discussed all the randomized controlled trials that came before it. With that, let's talk about the paper by Koster et al. that was published this week in the Journal of Rheumatology. Again, it was entitled The Efficacy of Methotrexate in Real-World Management of Giant Cell Arteritis, a Case Control Study. So this is one of those classic Olmsted County papers that was performed at the Mayo Clinic. They performed a retrospective chart review of all patients diagnosed with GCA from 1998 to 2013 and identified every single patient in their cohort who had been given methotrexate. It's a retrospective review, so we don't have standardized case report forms, we don't have specific definitions or inclusion criteria, we didn't have pre-specified primary outcome measures. All of these retrospective reviews lack a lot of the things that make a randomized controlled trial so strong. The second is that we just have all of these cases of patients who started methotrexate. We don't know what the natural history of disease in this group was, so it's not really fair to follow that group alone and say, how did they do? Because what are we comparing it to? This is where a case control study comes in. In addition to the 83 cases of patients with GCA who got methotrexate, they identified 83 patients from their overall group of patients who had GCA that didn't get methotrexate. Hence, a case control study. Now, when you're building a case control study, you want your cases and controls to be as close as possible. So it's nice if they come from the same clinic, which in this case they did. It's helpful if they're treated by the same physicians, which in this case they were. It's nice if they're from a relatively similar background, which in this case they were. So when the authors analyzed their two groups, they found a mean age of diagnosis around 70, median time of follow-up of four years, and no significant difference in demographics, lab variables, or baseline disease characteristics. That shouldn't be surprising because these patients were matched to the controls. The median time from GCA diagnosis to methotrexate initiation in the cases was 39 weeks. So patients were not generally started up front. Rather, they waited until the patients had had a couple of flares. The median starting dose of methotrexate was 13.5 milligrams, and then it was uptitrated to 15 milligrams with a range of 12.5 to 20. Again, they're not quite at the maximum dose of methotrexate. Prior to starting methotrexate, 29% had not experienced a relapse, 28% had one relapse, 23% had two relapses, and 20% had three or more relapses. So about a quarter of this group was healthy, about half of the group had relapsed a couple times, and about a quarter were essentially the sickest GCA patients they had. In comparison, the controls, 71% had not experienced a relapse. So GCA in the control group was a lot less aggressive than GCA in the methotrexate group. The observed relapse rate prior to the methotrexate initiation in the case group was 11.8 per 10 person years. After methotrexate, this decreased to 3.72 relapses per 10 person years. That's a pretty impressive dive in the, in the rate of relapse. Now in the case group with methotrexate, we have a time point that's well-defined. When did they start methotrexate? In the group, we obviously don't have that. So what they did is they gave each control an index date to make the number of times from GCA diagnosis to the index date in the control group equivalent to that in the case group that started methotrexate. That makes sense because you're trying to catch the disease in the same part of its natural history. In the control group, the rate was 4.5 relapses per 10 person years before the index date and 2.68 relapses per 10 person years following the index date. So it's interesting, in both groups, the rate of relapse decreased, but in the methotrexate group, it went from 11.8 to 3.72 per 10 person years, and in the control group, it went from 4.5 to 2.68 per 10 person years. So you saw a much bigger reduction in the methotrexate group. 
I think it's also worth asking what happened to the patients who started methotrexate. So 33 of the 83 patients in the methotrexate group, or 40%, wound up stopping methotrexate. A lot of this was for adverse events, 48% of them. Lack of efficacy and a sustained clinical response was the remainder, with one-third stopping methotrexate just because they started to do well. So what does this add to what we already know about methotrexate? Well, it's hard because I don't really trust case control studies. I think this was a well-run case control study, but there are a number of problems that make this challenging. For one, it's retrospective by nature, so we're just looking back at charts. It's hard because all of the things that I quibble with in RCTs are completely wide open in case control studies. We don't know who was recording what. We don't know how well they recorded data. We don't know the criteria that each individual physician was using to diagnose a flare. It's kind of a big black box. Another is that there is just something different between a patient who has started on methotrexate and a patient who is not. Based on their data, it's pretty easy to say that the main difference was that the patients who got methotrexate were the ones who had really aggressive GCA that just kept relapsing. It's impressive that after starting methotrexate, these patients reverted to a rate of relapse that was close to that of the control group. But what if that's just the natural history of disease? Maybe aggressive GCA was just going to get better anyway. I find that somewhat implausible, but it is a possibility. And then finally, you can't forget the fact that this was an unblinded study. When physicians know they have a patient who they've started on methotrexate and they really want it to work, you could imagine that they assess things a little bit differently. In the back of their head, perhaps they're saying, you know, they're on methotrexate, we don't have a whole lot of other options. I really don't want to call their current symptoms a relapse because what are we gonna do then? I know that's somewhat cynical, but I also think it's important to note that randomized controlled trials with blinding are really important. This also affects the patient perspective, where maybe patients who are now started on prednisone and some chemotherapy are more likely to feel like they're not having symptoms. Relapse and GCA can be pretty subjective. A lot of the time it's just vague aching of your jaw or fatigue or temporal artery pain. Once you start a medication like methotrexate, you could imagine that a lot of patients were feeling somewhat better about how they were doing and were more inclined to say they were doing well, even if they weren't. Overall though, after reading all these papers, I have a relatively coherent picture in my head of what I think methotrexate brings to the table. At diagnosis, it does appear to save you a relapse or two with number needed to treat of somewhere over five in my opinion. I don't know that that's worth starting everyone on methotrexate, but it's a reasonable thing to consider. For patients with refractory disease, in a case control study, it appears to cut the rate of relapse by about half. That's not nothing, and for someone who has had three or four relapses of giant cell arteritis, that's certainly something worth trying. In the end, I still think the first-line therapy for giant cell arteritis is tocilizumab. In patients for whom this is not available, though, I'm now going to be much more inclined to give methotrexate, cross my fingers, and hope that it works. If you do that five times, you'll probably spare someone one relapse and possibly about a gram of steroids. That's not ideal, but it's something. And like I said at the beginning, methotrexate is kind of what rheumatologists do. Thanks again for tuning in. Like I said at the beginning, if you're enjoying this podcast, please share with your friends. You can find everything at ebroom.com. That's all for today. Have a great week.